0: Well, it's very good to see so many new faces and old faces. Uh, I'm Brendan Smith, head of LSE. Some of you I know a long time. If it's your first uh, LSE event as a new alumnus or a friend of LSE, you're you're, you're very welcome. Um, this evening, uh, we have our director, or as we explained to the Chinese, our president uh, of, of LSE, because everyone's a director in China, at least. Uh, So we're honoured to have uh, Craig Calhoun uh, with us this evening on his trip to China and to Asia. He was in Hong Kong over the weekend and then in Singapore and arrived in in a snowy Beijing at 2 a.m. this morning. Um, So he is a little bit tired. Uh, We had meetings at Peking University today at the People's Bank um, at the Ministry of Health where he's starting a new project. Um, and this evening, now we are here. with all our distinguished alumni. Um, Craig started at LSE back in September. Um, came from New York University, where he was a professor and director of the Institute of Public Knowledge, and he was also the president of the Social Science Research uh, Council in the United States, which would be very similar to CAS, the <coughs> Chinese Academy of Social Sciences here here in. China. He did his uh, PhD in uh, Oxford, uh, so we will forgive him for that, he's not LSE, <laughs> he nobody's perfect, uh, before returning to his distinguished co- career in, in the United States, and also, indeed, he has been to China many times, indeed his first time was in China was in 1980, uh, so at the very start of the uh, o- opening up period, and then again in 84. And indeed, he was teaching in China in 1989, in that momentous year. Uh, And indeed, he might even be with some students on Tiananmen Square, but we will keep that one quiet, uh, just among ourselves. Um, And this evening, he is going to speak to us on what threatens (coughs) global capitalism now. So please give him a very warm welcome.
1: Hello everyone, and thanks to Brendan for that introduction and for all the work that he does here in China to strengthen the LSE and its profile. Uh, I think you probably all know that we have a range of programs in China. We have joint degrees, we have um, research relationships, we have short courses that are offered, we have annual conference and other sorts of events, including the alumni activities, which keep growing and because Chinese students are now the largest international student group at the LSE with almost a thousand Chinese students, we expect the alumni group to keep getting bigger and bigger, so expect to see me coming back on a regular basis to visit with you. The um, alumni activities are an important part of the school, and before starting the, the uh, proper lecture, I want to stress that. This is, the LSE is your school. It will always be your school take care of it, but also give us advice. If you have thoughts of ways in which the LSE can improve, things in the LSE that you want to make sure we never change, I'm told that it's very important that we never change rights bar, and we have no plan (laughs) of changing rights bar. Um, But if you also have ideas of ways in which returning alumni can be helped uh, as they return to China after degrees or other thoughts, please, feel welcome and encouraged to share those thoughts with us. We would like to learn from you and make the LSE work even better for students in the future. My my task tonight isn't to speak about the LSE though, however in the questions if you want to ask anything about what is happening at the LSE, feel free. What I want to talk about, or assign to talk about, is what threatens capitalism now? The financial crisis Um, has obviously captured a great deal of news in the West and there are obviously a variety of changes. Capitalism has been threatened recurrently. It was threatened with the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution. It's been threatened by a number of sorts of direct action challenging it and it's been threatened by crises internally. But capitalism seems unlikely to collapse next week or next year or anytime soon. This however doesn't mean that there aren't threats and challenges to the capitalist system and this is what I want to talk about. Capitalism is at the moment surviving the worst financial and economic crisis since the Great Depression. The crisis has lingered much longer than expected. Already three years ago, people began to speak of recovery and the question was how rapid would the recovery be? in the United States, in Europe, and globally. By now, people have begun to change the language and to talk about the extent to which a very long recession is changing some of the basic institutions. And that's what I want to talk about. This crisis is deep, it's lingering, and it comes on the heels of a damaging era of lopsided financialization and neoliberal weakening of social institutions. It accelerates also a shift of momentum away from the long-standing core economies in North America and Europe and towards other parts of the world, including China. The crisis didn't create this shift, but it accelerated it. The shift of momentum, of proportionate energy, if you will, in the global economy, which has moved to some extent from west to east and from north to south in the global affairs, that's not an overnight change. You know, U.S. is not going to go away tomorrow. And uh, the China is not going to be the global hegemonic power tomorrow. But there is an important change underway. I will suggest briefly, it's really been underway since, um, for at least 30 or 40 years. But it was brought into the forefront of attention by the crisis and accelerated in many ways the proportionate shifts. So at the very least, Capitalism, as we know it, is likely to be transformed. And arguably, it may only be possible for global capitalist growth to be renewed and extended if it is transformed. Significant changes may be required. To think well about how capitalism may be renewed and whether it may be transformed, we need to recognize, though, that it is not a perfectly self-contained system and that the challenges it faces are not only economic. It's a habit, it's actually a product of the capitalist modern era to speak about the economy, the state or politics, society as though they are completely separate phenomena. You know, we have economics and we have study of government and we have sociology and they're different disciplines and different subjects. But the world itself doesn't divide up quite so neatly as our academic boundaries. These flow into each other. One of the things I'm sure you all learned at the LSE was about the social context of the economy, the social issues that are influenced by economic life, and the kinds of debates that go on about this. This is something that's very current in China, because in many ways, China's very rapid economic development has outpaced social development, development of certain social institutions and other sectors in society. So very rapid economic growth, increase in wealth has not yet been accompanied by as much renewal and transformation of health care, by building new institutions to care for older people in society, um, by finding replacements for the kind of organization that used to be provided by the Donway or local work unit. Um, in many people's lives. Housing markets have changed all of this. So there's lots of change. And success in capitalism can produce social challenges just as much as crisis in capitalism. So there are certain kinds of social challenge that come in the UK, for example, where growth is very slow and the economy is really hovering on the edge of a triple dip recession for the third time falling into recession in rapid succession and there are social consequences to no growth, but there are also social consequences to rapid growth and partially similar, partly different issues that face other parts of the world. The, what we need is not simply a theory of capitalism, but an appreciation then of how capitalism depends on relationships between economic and political organization, economic action, and the rest of social life. And one of the questions that I will ask implicit in this is, to what extent should we think of the rapidly developing economic sectors in China as capitalist, or as socialist, but with a partially capitalist side, or as simply capitalism with Chinese characteristics Right? How do we think of this? But the point is not just the name it's to recognize that a key feature is the interconnections of the different economies globally and the fact that there is no simple boundary anymore to say, oh this is a socialist society completely self-contained, this is capitalist self-contained and the economy doesn't remain self-contained. <clears throat> Capitalism has flourished and economic growth in China, whether we call it capitalist or not since the 1980s, especially since 1992, has flourished and secured widespread social legitimacy only on the basis of institutions and social relations, many of which in the West were damaged in recent decades. The contrast that I'm going to draw is between large parts of the West, North America and Europe in particular, where since the 1970s there, was, there were a set of changes that in many ways either undercut or removed or privatized social institutions that provided welfare systems, that provided support for individuals. And we can see this even in the LSE where the proportion of funding from the UK government went from the large majority of funding, most of the costs of the LSE, right to 18%. So a dramatic difference. Now the LSE thrives, but it thrives because it receives a variety of kinds of private support, starting with student fees and continuing to philanthropy. Well, in China, and in varying degrees in other rapidly developing economies, there's not exactly the same situation, but not completely different either. The need for new sorts of social institutions is considerable, and this includes questions about what is the role of philanthropy in Chinese society? What are the role of charities? Is the state the only source of support and welfare, or do organizations of various kinds created outside the state also play this role? Either private businesses for their members and employees, or charitable organizations doing this for others, sometimes for groups that are are related, like a clanship organization, sometimes for people who are strangers, a pure charitable organization. How do the d- institutions develop that are needed in this sense? And this is crucial because in either system or either setting, in UK, in China, or for that matter, Brazil, in Russia, in US, a lot of other places around the world, it's important because the global economic growth is vulnerable not only to market upheavals excessive risk taking or poorly managed banks, it's vulnerable to wars, environmental degradation and climate change, crises of social solidarity and welfare, and to social changes if we don't adapt adequately to those changes. The recent financial crisis reveals the main internal vulnerability of capitalism. Inside the economic system there's one big vulnerability that the financial crisis makes clear. This is systemic risk. That is risks embedded in the complex web of internal connections that make up the modern financial system. So the modern financial system gets described from outside. Some of you are specialists in finance will have much more detailed descriptions. But from outside people say, oh, it's globalization and it's highly interconnected and so forth. Well, these are true. It's global, it's highly interconnected, very unevenly interconnected, but also interconnected in ways that create a system that is potentially supportive of economic enterprise including not just financial enterprise but all of economic enterprise that provides for credit thus provides for leveraging of assets into development whether it's property development or startup businesses um, of new technologies and so forth. Finance plays a crucial role in all of this but it creates a risk and the risk in its very systematicity Right. And this sort of systemic risk um, is critical to see, and it shaped the nature of the crisis. This wasn't a capitalist crisis, the nine, 2008 to the present day, in the old sense, the sense described by both neoclassical economics and Marxism—a crisis of overproduction and underconsumption. It was a crisis much more specifically centered in finance, and it was multiplied in its effect, made much more powerful by a growth in finance, by what we might call financialization. Starting at about the 74, 75 recession, and in continuing up until the 2008 crisis in Western markets, there was a dramatic increase in the amount of the world's total wealth that was held in the form of financial assets it went approximately from 25% to 75% to the extent this can be measured. The measurement qualification is important because the measurements are skewed in the direction of OECD economies. That is, it's very hard to measure the proportion of wealth held outside the OECD and outside formal asset structures. But nonetheless, notice how dramatic that shift is. Financial assets, credit instruments, Um, and so forth, bonds, all of these kinds of assets, accounted for 25% of global wealth in the 1970s, 75% of global wealth by the time of the current crisis. So when the crisis hit, it had much more impact because finance mattered so much more. There's a complicated story I won't try to rehearse about why that happened and what happened in the 1970s, but a couple of elements are important to see because they remind us about the fact that the economy is not completely sealed off in just the economic realm, but is connected to other things. So a variety of things were going on. One of them that played a central role was the Vietnam War. I said, what does that have to do with finance? What it had to do with finance is that as the Vietnam War became unpopular in America, as Americans my age. I was a university student in the days. in fact, was drafted in this period of time, though um, I worked in a hospital, not in the army. Um, At the time of the Vietnam War, the government under Richard Nixon determined it was not possible to pay pass tax increases to pay for the cost of the Vietnam War. And the last several years of the Vietnam War were financed mainly on credit. And this started a long-term pattern of US borrowing that continued on into the present era. It wasn't yet borrowing from China, but the pattern would continue so that by the late 1980s, this would be a pattern, especially since 1990s, of increased borrowing from China and from developing countries, an unusual credit pattern, the richer countries borrowing from the poorer countries. But it played a crucial role in this. So the Vietnam War played a role in this financialization. It brought a massive increase in the amount of debt around. The particular debt of the US government that remains a problem, but also the more general phenomenon just of debt in the world. Because debt then becomes something that is tradable. It can be securitized, it can be bought and sold in various ways as a sort of asset. Well, other things happened in the 1970s as well. The Yom Kippur War, a war between um, Arab states and Israel over issues of Palestine and organization, led, among other things, to an OPEC boycott on a dramatic increase in the price of petroleum on a world scale. And by dramatic, I mean from approximately $3 per barrel to over $100 per barrel. Right, dramatic increase. We get worried now when there's a 10 or 20% increase. Think of that, right? That was, again, a political phenomenon, but also a cultural clash between um, Arabs and Israelis that had, as a byproduct, an impact on global commodities markets, helped to produce a recession. The 1974-75 recession was the most severe between the Great Depression and the one we're in now, in the West, and it reshaped, again, a lot of things, one of them being a financiation. In this case, it led to things like the establishment of sovereign wealth funds. So the world's largest sovereign wealth fund operating today, that of the United Arab Emirates, is founded at exactly this moment in this context to make use of the petroleum wealth, which becomes so much larger in the context of that new deployment of OPEC's power after the Yom Kippur War. And it not only means that there's, again, financialization, because what happens to the oil money? Right? It can't be absorbed immediately into the Saudi Arabian or the Emirati or other economies in the region, which are in relatively unpopulous societies with relatively low levels of development. It gets invested internationally. It becomes another source of credit to the US, sometimes equity investments as well, and to Europe. And it also is invested gradually in economic transformation in the home countries, in the Arab states. But without spending a long time on that, you'll get the idea that here, now there's more debt, there's more finance in the world. That finance is significant in the finance industry Which grows dramatically during this period and begins to do work like investing in new technologies and so some of the inventions these laptop computers and iPads and iPods and all these sorts of things are shaped by this global availability of finance that can be directed at these different sorts of investments by smart LSE graduates of the finance department and others and this um, begins to conti- uh, continues to reshaping. Now I'll make the story of the '70s short because I want to get to the present day. But there are a lot more components. The beginning of a very long asset bubble globally, which takes uh, the shape of changing asset prices for a variety of commodity and raw materials, but particularly for U.S. real estate and English real estate. The real estate gets tied up with mortgage markets. The amount of money that people owe on their homes goes up. So the leveraging of what had previously been a relatively non-financial asset, a house or a flat, is, becomes enormous. And people sometimes owe 100% of the value of the property. And there's a lot of gambling on this. This will not be lost on you as a phenomenon anyone who lives in Beijing. right? The idea of investors who buy property simply to sell the property not to live in it, they buy five apartments if they can, the government potentially steps in to regulate and say, no, you can't have so many apartments, it either succeeds or it doesn't succeed in this, there's a highly speculative market, it creates a problem so that even a slowdown in Chinese growth from 10 or 12% to 5% creates a problem in that market because people have been betting, in effect, on the faster growth. So you would think, oh, 5% growth, this is great, but it's actually a bit more of a problem. When his growth fell further, below 5%, it's a more serious problem. Well, this, in the over a, a 30-year period in the West, transforms the economy. There's lots and lots of effects, and I won't kind of go on in it, but you get the idea. The stage is set for 2008 in many ways because the 2000 the trigger for much of 2008 was mortgage-backed securities in the North American market and the continuation, the ripple effect, was banks and investment firms, and sometimes hedge funds and others, that were over leveraged, or were taking excessive risks, but perhaps above all, heavily using a variety of new kinds of financial technology, credit default swaps and derivatives and so forth, had become far more interconnected than ever before. So the point that I started with is crucial. The interconnectivity of the financial capitalist system is much greater, much more global. So there is interconnectivity in manufacturing, right? So German auto companies are manufacturing in China and selling globally, and this is interconnected. Finance multiplied the levels of these interconnections and can do it much faster. We had a foretaste of the issues in the 1997 currency crisis in Southeast Asia, and other bubbles burst. But what we had in effect was a very long bubble. You might call it a mega bubble, a boom in the West. Huge increases in house prices. Huge increases in the cost of universities. Huge increases in all kinds of prices, which made many people rich. Huge increases in the number of millionaires, right? But which was produced largely on paper in financial assets rather than by transformations of output. There's one big exception to that which also shows some of the role of finance in this and that is the high-tech industries. But the high-tech industries are an interesting combination of things. They are produced when finance capital comes to back innovations and new technologies. The innovations and new technologies were not all new, however. They were largely produced by the government, particularly the US government, during the period after World War II, starting in the war, when the US was heavily involved in technology developments in the war, and continuing with healthcare and military spending from the US government, doing the basic work in the technology. So the internet grows out of what was called the ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Administration Net. The ARPA was part of the Defense Department of the United States. The biggest part of the early communications and information technology revolution was financed by government funding not intended as an economic investment but part of a defense expenditure linked to the arms race and the cold war but then it created technologies that entrepreneurs could put to new use in the 1970s and after and in the 1970s we get Apple founded Microsoft founded a range of these sorts of businesses and increasingly others in biotechnologies and other areas Now, the entrepreneurs are a crucial ingredient, the technology is a crucial ingredient, and the finance, that is the existence (coughs) of a lot of money in a form that can be redeployed to back new companies and startups uh, that can take a new public offering to a valuation of $100 million uh, off the bat, and so forth, reshapes this. So we get much of the world that we inhabit. Finance makes possible huge advantages, gains, the new technologies being the preeminent example of this. But there's a vulnerability. And the vulnerability, as I suggested, is in the systemic risk. Over leveraging in a bank doesn't just hurt that bank. It now creates a variety of risks for counterparties. That is, for other people who either put their money in the bank or owe money to the bank or in some relationship with it. Much of the fanciest of the new financial technologies were attempts to minimize or mitigate this risk. They were actually developed, many of the derivative instruments, things like credit default swaps, in order to manage risk. They were all meant to reduce the risk in certain ways. Some of them functioned as insurance, right? Some of them as hedges and so forth. But the effect was to multiply the interconnections. Now, in 2008 and 2009, when there were crises like the failure of Lehman Brothers and in New York and other precipitating events of this financial crisis, there was a phrase that was often used: "Too big to fail." People would say, "Oh, the government had to bail out Lehman Brothers, or it didn't bail out Lehman Brothers; it had to bail out other firms." Um, and eventually, this continued. Right? At first, Europeans people they also thought, <laughs> those silly Americans. Um, this is all about Excessive risk taking and bad regulatory management in America. But of course, it spread. And it spread to Europe. And it encountered in Europe a banking system that was extremely vulnerable with problems. The banking system had grown extremely rapidly during this her- whole era of financialization. And so the banking system was hugely vulnerable. And Britain experienced bank failures. It had to step in and nationalize banks like the Royal Bank of Scotland, which owned By then, National Westminster and other banks was in negotiation of a merger with Santander. There had been this huge consolidation and merger mania, largely driven again by financing, not just by being in the financial industry, but by the leveraged money that went into these firms. So the effect on the European economy was huge, very nearly brought down the Euro, and it continues to this day in the news like the bailout of Cyprus, in which you have to ask yourself, What's going on with the fact that a bailout of Europe's smallest economy that counts for one half of 1%, not quite one half of 1% of the valuations in the Eurozone right, could be creating such a crisis as it seems to be doing now. I'll come Back to a moment of that. But the main thing I want to say is that it wasn't just too big to fail. It was too connected to fail. This was the problem in the economy. It was so connected that when any one firm failed, if you just said, Well, look, they made stupid mistakes. Let them fail. Then it also affected lots and lots and lots of other firms. It affected ordinary people who then became politically upset with their governments. And it affected the governments themselves, which began to run in deficit and have to borrow more money um, in their financial policies. So the connectedness of the financial system created a set of vulnerabilities in which even business managers who were not making the crucial mistakes were highly vulnerable to some of those issues in the larger system. And that remains the case today. By and large, as the economies of the OECD countries, of the richer countries in the world, have worked out of the crisis, they have maintained this. There's been a retreat in global financial connection. It's less than it was five years ago, but just a little bit less and we still have much of this in place. There's not been a structural reform. At the same time, there's not very much additional financial regulation. One of the other features of this period when this happened was that there was a widespread reduction in the amount of financial regulation governing all of this complex system in the West. That was partly because of deregulation under the Thatcher government, and afterwards in Britain, under Reagan, and afterwards, and especially under Bush in the US. But it was even more because much of the finance moved into new areas that had never been regulated. So the very, almost the definition of a hedge fund industry is not what hedging is, it is operating outside of the conventional regulatory and transparency regimes of other kinds of investment structures, outside the rules that apply, for example, to banks. Now, all of this created vulnerability, created the crisis. This is somewhat different in China, and for that matter, in India, and in Brazil, and so forth, but they're connected. They don't escape completely. It's connected in interesting ways because it speeds up Chinese development. It's one of the things that brought China's rapid development um, after 1992 was an increase in the availability of credit to business in China, largely done by the Chinese government, which made intentional policies to try to spur economic development. And there are various theories of why it came to this decision. I'm not gonna comment on that now. We could take it up in questions. But starting around 1992, there's a much more open credit regime. This is made possible in part by this global financialization and China's role in it, and China's financial assets that it has to be able to deploy at this part. at this point. But other things are also crucial. The rise of joint venture companies, which played a pivotal role in the transition in China, although they're in a way less and less important um, as indigenous Chinese companies are more and more important, was largely finance-based. And the West de-industrialized to a very large extent this process in which the West moved from 25% finance to 75% finance in the holdings of wealth was also a period in which industrial production was shipped overseas to a large extent from most Western countries. One of the reasons why Germany is in better shape than most other European countries today is that Germany did not cut its industrial production as much as others. The UK, for example, basically um, moved out of manufacturing industry to a large extent. losing by various estimates 50% and upward of its total manufacturing productivity. This has various effects including um, a relatively large um, uh, problem of generating employment for people who don't have high skills. LSE graduates all get jobs. LSE has the highest average earnings of its graduates of any university in Britain. That's not the problem, right? Where are the LSE graduates going to work? In government or in finance or in law? Right? The issue is that there are now many fewer jobs for people who are not university graduates or not elite university graduates in this changed economy. Um, and that the economy is not balanced. The financial downturn hits much harder because of the role of finance in the economy and so forth. OK. Now, um, the development in China, however, and in Malaysia, and in India, and in South Korea, and in several other economies, changes capitalism. Because now we have a number of new entries into the global markets, which are playing bigger and bigger roles, initially in manufacturing, but increasingly in other areas, and increasingly with the financial capacity to effectively buy out of some of their early joint venture partners. As for example, you get the Lenovo takeover of the IBM personal computer business or something. There's a whole series of these kinds of moves. And these the same effects that are producing the stagnation in the North American and European economies are producing proportionate gains in many other economies in the world. So there's a huge issue here. Now I'm going to leave this behind for the moment and I've said just frame this by saying the risk didn't go away. Who is benefiting from the booms changed. And so that this is more benefit in China and more benefit in other emerging markets developing countries. And I think this is a permanent change in capitalism. And one of the things to come back to at the end is to say, well how does it matter? And I asked at the beginning, what's the system? Do we call economic growth in China that looks a lot like capitalism. Capitalist, do we call it socialist, or what? I'm going to say it's not just an academic question. It's a question of what China will make of its future growth, how it will organize it, and how this will change the global situation. Because capitalism has always been, in part, a relationship between politics and economics. It has never been pure economics except in textbooks. because the pure economic system is always a sort of abstraction from a messier and more complicated reality in which governments were creating currencies and managing monetary systems. In which governments were securing the internal market and organizing it in relation to an external market with or without protectionist regimes. In which governments were um, stabilizing credit systems creating bankruptcy laws, and in otherwise always involved. And among other things, making possible in the West, the development of the very large multinational corporations that help to globalize what had been the European and North American model of capitalism, but also making possible in China, the growth of very large corporations that depend not only on their market power, but on their relationship to the state for successful operation. And this is not an exception. It's not as though that's true in China and it's some sort of problem. It was true in the US. Don't think that General Motors or IBM didn't also depend on their relationship to the state. So we have to change a bit of our thinking of that. And what it means is that upheavals and transformations in politics actually matter a lot in economics. And then consider the social context, the question of, welfare systems, and whether ordinary people think the growth is legitimate. Do ordinary people think that the rich people that they see have earned their money or just gotten lucky, or are criminals? And I think they think some mix of this, here and elsewhere. I think that there are resentments of the rich when people don't see how that has been a productive investment for society, whether it has created jobs or has created. There's resentment of corruption, and corruption remains in China a huge issue to be dealt with, and I'm sure it will go into the new issues, one of the big issues for the new government. Right? Speculation fuels this. When people see lots of rampant speculation, what, they, what it looks like, and I think to some extent is, is an unproductive investment that pays off a lot. It's not an investment that creates jobs or creates new products for people as much as it is um, something that seems to make money out of money without benefiting people on the way. So there's a question about how the economy is connected to other social institutions in a way that makes it all seem to work for the whole society and generates legitimacy for it. With that in mind, let me turn more quickly to my concluding comments and say, there are some big, big threats, some of which I haven't even mentioned, and it's significant. I started with the core systemic issues in the economy. I would sum up by saying, by themselves, those will not spell doom for capitalism. Capitalism can recover from those things, but the recoveries often involve government action as in the New Deal in the United States with the Great Depression, but in various crises since, including the bailouts and the government actions in North America and in Europe that addressed the problems of 2008, 2009. So this doesn't have to spell an end to the fantastic growth that has been brought about by this economic system, but we have to recognize that it always is entwined by politics and ask how that works. And I'm going to say there are other sorts of threats and connections, that it is the outside of capitalism, that it is capitalism's connections to the rest of life that hold the biggest threats in various ways, what we might call in economic terms the externalities, that capitalism operates as a system which left by itself will externalize lots of the costs. The costs will not show up on the balance sheet of any capitalist corporation, So the question is, where do they go? Does the government bear them? Or do ordinary citizens have to bear them? And if it's ordinary citizens, do they become resentful and then threaten the system? So what are these kinds of externalities? Well, today was a beautiful sunny day with a blue sky after the snow. But you know, I'm told the air quality isn't always this good in Beijing. (laughs) Right? This is an externality. Right. This is a product in several levels, not just of capitalism, but of a consu- growth in consumerism in Chinese society, the cars, the high energy use system, um, and of a, so far, a failure to adequately manage this from the government point of view. Now, I'm not proposing any particular policy or intervening to Chinese politics, but I'm just suggesting this is going to be on the agenda now, and the government is going to be pushed to it. right? Because it may volunteer, right? as... The premier volunteered in his speech that he's gonna deal with this, but he also volunteered, you can hold me accountable if I don't. And that's because there will be Chinese citizens complaining. There are already environmental movements. There are already green movements in China, but there are also just already a lot of people who are annoyed to have to wear purifiers and masks and, and still breathe in the air, okay? It's an externality to the business of any one company that contributes to this, right? But it's a issue for the larger system. And there are more, so let me just comment briefly. There are a whole set of issues that are threats to capitalism that we might call the failure of states to provide the necessary conditions for continuing capitalism, for capitalist reproduction. What are those conditions? Those conditions range from the health of the population to education of future generations. China is investing enormously in both. My reading is China is going to work very hard to provide the conditions for the continued expansion of its economy. All right, that's high on the agenda. But my reading of the situation in Europe is that this is much less clear. And in the U.S., this is sort of deadlocked in an extreme split in Congress that is making it very hard to get legislation through um, and reach compromises in effective ways. So the low growth or even negative growth in Europe and the U.S., has largely to do with governments being not up to their role in sustaining the economy. The core financial issues in Europe are that the political system behind the European Central Bank and behind the Euro was way too weak. I'm actually proud to note that Ralph Darndorf, one of my predecessors, the LSE, late in his career, wrote a trenchant essay in which he said, nobody is more in favor of the EU than I am, nobody's more European than I am. Look at me, both somebody who is very active in Germany, very active in Britain, globally leader leader of the LSE. But he said, Europe has not created the institutions to actually sustain what it is setting in motion. And I think we saw that over the last five years. We saw that the institutions weren't up. It's not whether the Euro was a good or bad idea in itself, it's that it required a new set of institutions and Europe didn't move enough to get these. Well, the US Congress is now an institution that begins to look um, sadly inadequate to the economic tasks that are before it, short term political debates and sort of ideological divisions stand in the way of needed political actions. We get things like the so-called fiscal cliff debates earlier this year about whether the U.S would um, run into a massive uh, collapse in spending with a failure to get a new spending bill. Um, that actually shouldn't even have been an issue. That wasn't an issue of deep disagreements. That was an issue of, of each side being unwilling to compromise in order to get something sensible done, but it had potentially huge impacts. So I think we face a risk if states fail. And what that means is we have to look at um, states, governments, politics, as much more centrally connected to the economic future um, than we often do. It means for the West that we have to stop looking at Asian economies and say, isn't it strange? In China, in Korea, in these other countries, the state seems to play a very large role. And sometimes they say it's not even really capitalism. What we have to notice, states have been crucial in the West. The state is intrinsic to this. What we have to ask is, what are the good policies? for the state. What should the state be doing? Is it doing that? And we have to recognize the dangers of high state involvement, that some kinds of state involvements will be economically problematic, even calamitous, that states aren't good at picking champions in certain sorts of things, and that it increases the risk of corruption. So it's not that this is all good. It's that it's inevitable and necessary. Another kind of risk we might call informalization. Where states don't provide effectively and the economies, the private market economies, don't provide effectively, how do people live? Well, there's another side to corruption. The corruption that we get upset about is when a general is using his power and influence to basically siphon money off from the economy in various kinds of illegitimate deals. We don't think that it's the same thing when everybody in the society is just using guanxi to get through life. They're not totally unrelated, because they're both dysfunctions of this larger system. And we have systems in which people's only way of surviving is an informal sector in the economy. So there's a big informal sector and a small informal sector. Let me take it away from the Chinese example. How are people surviving in Barcelona or in Lisbon during this financial crisis with Um, Unemployment rates of young people that are 30, 40, 50% with an absence of credit, with um, huge collapses in the economy. They're They're surviving by informal systems of mutual trade. In many cases, they've even created local currencies that are not official state currencies to measure debt relations, right? There's a huge informal sector of this kind in the world. It's historically been associated with developing countries. The word, the phrase, informal sector, was invented by an economic anthropologist studying Ghana in the 1970s, right? And the way in which countries with low economic development managed to keep things going. But now, the biggest growth of this kind of informal sector is in Europe and North America. In the previous core rich capitalist countries, for the parts of the society that have been somewhat left out of the benefits of the market system and that the government isn't taking care of as much because of the destruction of the welfare state. That's the small scale version, but the large scale versions are significant and it's not just corruption of individuals, it's what we could call offshore capitalism. It's almost impossible to measure, but many trillions of pounds worth of global capitalism is never formally recorded. I mentioned Cyprus earlier, and the issue of the bailout of Cyprus and its impact. Part of the story of the bailout of Cyprus is Russian money. Cyprus, right? Appears if you consult statistics, World Bank statistics on global foreign direct investment. Cyprus is the largest source of foreign direct investment in Russia. Larger than the EU, the rest of the EU combined right now this is not because Cypriots just have so much capital to invest and they specialize in Russian investments this is money laundering right this is Russian money that has been taken out of Russia using Cypriot banks to either keep it or invest it back in Russia okay this is a global version of capitalism outside the legal system, not paying taxes, not formally registered and not regulated by any state, and it's many trillions of pounds worth. Not just Russia, either. This is going on globally. This is in the background to the stories of minerals in Africa and the wars over minerals in Africa. This is in the background of global drug issues and arms trade, right? And a whole range of different sorts of issues. But some of it is just business, in which the businessmen make more money by avoiding taxes and regulatory systems. That informalization is also, though, a risk to capitalism. This money can threaten states and topple the system. One of the reasons this informalization is going on is the failure to rebuild the damaged social institutions in the West or new institutions elsewhere the small-scale corruption in China is an adaptation to the absence of formal systems and formal institutions that would handle all the necessary things. In the West, it's a response to the decline of many of the formal institutions that used to do a better job handling all of these sorts of basic human needs, caring for people, care economies are a big part of this. So there's a threat from from having weak social institutions either not building new ones enough in China to take care of people, right? Or losing the ones in the West. And that's linked to a feature of this whole era of financialization, which is radically increased inequality. That's a slightly different story in every country. In China, of course, it has to do with the dismantling of part of the institutional structure of an older Chinese economy. But inequality grew dramatically. The gap between the richest and the poorest right, just grew enormously. But it grew enormously in the US, and it grew enormously in Britain. It grew enormously everywhere that experienced this. And it almost always grows faster in an era of financialization. That financialization allows an almost indefinite accumulation of assets. Right? They don't spoil or deteriorate in the same way that material, physical assets do. Physical assets tend to get recycled much more um, in the economy in various ways. They t- get turned into jobs for people, in um, workers, maintenance, whatever. Okay? So we've had a huge increase in inequality. Governments have chosen not to do very much about the inequality, and that threatens legitimacy. That leaves a lot of unhappy people, and it leaves a lot of people relying on the informal sector in various ways. Now another externality is the one I alluded to before environment, climate change, water resources, air pollution, right? a threat to the system. I think it's much more likely if we see a huge social upheaval that it will come from environmental crises than from a collapse of capitalism as such, but it will have huge impacts on capitalism if it can't get the energy resources it needs or the materials and raw materials it needs or this producing so much externalities in terms of the environment that it loses legitimacy with the people. Finally, there's war. We shouldn't rule it out. Right? Local wars, right? the risk of things getting out of hand in relatively local conflicts, islands with Japan, South Sea, South Pacific, Korea, and this region. Okay? But in other regions, other conflicts, and the potential for larger conflicts, which would also be huge threats to capitalism. And so far, our progress is relatively mixed on building a multilateral world order. That is, building a new system that doesn't depend on American hegemony, doesn't depend entirely on the old institutions that were built at the end of World War II to balance power among what had been the most powerful countries in that complex. Right? Remember. The UN, the Bretton Woods institutions, all of these were built at the end of World War II to prevent that war and to balance and unify the countries mainly of North America and Europe, right? secondarily Australia and some others. Those institutions have adapted. They've brought in new countries. They've rec- China finally was recognized. In Taiwan, right? there's been change. But these are old institutions. And we live in a new world. We don't live in a world where America is going to be the hegemonic power forever, bearing lots of extra costs. American taxpayers object to carrying the extra costs. The American economy isn't growing fast enough for it to play all of this role of leader in these different organizations. Americans haven't fully woken up to this, of course. We still think we are the unquestioned global leader. But sort of deep down, we're nervous because we know that we can't afford this. and It's not entirely true. But we haven't developed a really new system, a system that would bring the so-called BRICS, right? Brazil and Russia and India and China, and maybe South Africa and some others, into a more cooperative order. And that could even include countries like Iran that at the moment are isolated from international politics, but that are big, significant countries with major resources. Somehow, if we're to avoid war, if we're to deal with environmental crises, we're going to need to evolve a different structure for global politics as well as to keep improving in domestic politics. So what really threatens capitalism now is only partly inside capitalism and maybe that's the easiest part to deal with. The big threats are external. They're serious and we should all work on them. The LSE certainly will keep working on them. Thank you. I would be happy to take questions, or hear comments, or or even contradictions. Because it's the LSE, there should always be somebody who contradicts the speaker. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, thank you for helping out. Um,
0: The currency war, as we know, the RMB is appreciated at the moment, and that's don't you think the Chinese government, um, they don't have
2: enough way or enough methods to, uh, to
0: solve this kind of problem and to provide uh, more credit, the market that is needed at the moment. But at, at the same time, the shadow of banking is, is booming now. Right. Uh, I think th- that's the dilemma of it, uh,
2: especially for the companies, the uh, central government. Don't yep. you think, and this is the beginning of the end
1: uh, for the for the China community. For, for the so, um, I'm not sure. I think it's the beginning of the end. But everything else you said, I agree with um, very much. I think it's in the government's power to create more tools and mechanisms for being able to improve the realistic valuation of renminbi. Um, and that may mean simply floating it, it may mean a different and better regulated version of it. I'm not um, a specialist on currency and I'm not gonna try to get into the details, the judgment. My view would be it has to be improved. That's absolutely right. That this is going to be a liability for China and a source of tension outside as well as something that is just complaints globally in this. Um, That the short-term benefits of uh, helping Chinese exports are increasingly outweighed by the costs. I say that not thinking that protection, I'm actually not a pure free trader for what it's worth. Um, I think that during the early stage of this takeoff in the Chinese economy, that was actually helpful. It helped China um, at the expense of some of the competitors in the global economy. But I think China is now such a big part of the global economy that for it to do things that hurt the global economy hurts China. Um, and so it's in a different situation from when it was a much smaller part of the global economic valuation. It's also in a different situation in the increasingly in the structure of its economy. And I'm going to connect this to one other thing, just, um, which is the future for China can't be artificially improved uh, markets for uh, manufacturing goods at low and middle levels. It's got to include higher value-added parts of the economy. So the future for China is things like integrating design into um, the work that's going on. And China has the potential to be a leader in the design industry. You go to the Shanghai Design Expert. you go to this, there's lots of potential. That's actually potentially held back by this sort of thing, so that, that you get counterproductive things for China's move into the next level. So I, I agree very much. The reason I... Um, disagree about whether it's the end of communism uh, partly is that I think um, depending on what you mean by it, communism already ended some time ago um, or um, it's such a flexible label that it can go on living indefinitely. So I don't think that there is any sort of line that we could say well this would end it, that would end it. The question is would it end China's economic growth and if it did would that end the government's grip on power? Uh, So maybe I'm saying the same thing, but I'm just restating it. But I think the government's grip on power depends on continued economic growth. And um, something that really destabilized that would be very threatening to the government, which is the government of the Communist Party, so maybe that would be the end of communism. But I actually think that it's entirely possible that the Communist Party and the Chinese government, while still declaring itself communist, can keep adapting and evolving indefinitely that there's no sort of automatic time limit to that, um, that, that that's an open-ended question. Please. Um,
2: yes, sir. Uh, we know this year's BRICS summit, five numbers of BRICS will propose an idea that to create uh, a BRICS bank. Yes.
1: Yeah, great question. It's a great LSE question because um, <laughs> LSE economist Lord Nicholas Stern has been one of the key um, advocators, was in on um, developing this idea when he was the chief economist of the World Bank, um, carried on an idea carried on by um, Justin Liu, Lin here in, in China and so forth. Um, I think that this proposal will move forward, the bank will get created, It will. Um, its short-term impact will depend on how well it is capitalized and on the governance structure the countries agree to. If I had to bet money, I would bet money on the countries all supporting it in principle and not giving enough um, uh, of their uh, money and governance power to it. But I hope, because I think it would be a good idea, that it gets more support. If it gets more support, this will be excellent for infrastructural development, Um, not only in the BRICS, but in the developed world. This would be a vehicle that would benefit developing economies and infrastructure and credit and an alternative to the IMF. And the IMF regimes have often been very problematic, and so an alternative to the IMF would be a good thing. It could be a sort of peaceful, cooperative alternative, or it could be a threat to the IMF. I think it will more likely just be one additional source um, and not It will not doom the IMF, but that remains to be seen how it takes off. But it's a very important idea, and I'm somewhat surprised that it hasn't gotten wider attention and more press, that it hasn't really been taken up as a popular idea, that it's been discussed among finance ministers, um, and uh, it needs to be seen as, as an important issue for these countries. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, please. Yes, I will try, Um, but you should know that there is no single agreed upon definition. If there were, a lot of economists would be out of jobs because we depend on there being arguments to keep us going about everything. But um, I I will try. So let let me try to be sort of brief about it. One thing first, it's not. It's not just markets. It's not just market economies. There have been markets throughout history. There are lots of kinds of markets. Capitalism is something more specific. So Adam Smith famously said, it's a human propensity to truck and barter, right? That we all trade with each other, and that's true. But what we mean by capitalism is rather a particular historical kind of economy that developed mainly in the last 450 years. And had roots especially in um, Europe, um, including in the Renaissance city states, Um, and trading networks that existed then, then continued through the development of the Dutch empire, the uh, British um, capitalism, then American capitalism, but at the same time spread throughout the world, partly by just trade and partly by colonialism. So what distinguished capitalism? What made it different for this period of time from just saying there were capitalists, right? Because there have always been people who accumulated some wealth and invested that wealth. That's not what was new though it became much more dominant. But what created modern capitalism was first that there were markets with so many people in them that no single actor could control them, right? So a change in markets, larger scale markets in which no one actor could exert monopoly, no group could exert an oligopoly control. So you know, a Medici could exert such disproportionate influence in Florence in the Renaissance, that that wasn't a capitalist market, it was dominated. Um, And in many cases, a state or a few elites in a society could exert such disproportionate influence. So markets that no single actor could control. Second, a detachment, or at least partial detachment of business enterprises from political power. Um, That it's not capitalism if the goal of economic activity is to convert it to political power. So, for example, the Ottoman Empire, and for that matter, part of the Chinese Empire at certain points past, had lots of enterprise, right, in the sort of um, Jinxian eras of China's history. It's a lot of commercial enterprise. It tended to get very quickly converted into political power, into other kinds of assets, rather than staying capitalist in a way. Um, so that capitalism requires this kind of some level of separation of business from power so that the goal of business continues to be making money rather than translating market position into political power. Um, Third, it requires finance. I was talking about earlier it requires the detachment of financial capital from particular enterprises such that investments can go to different enterprises if there's a potentially higher rate of return. This is at the very heart of what we mean by capitalism, that the capital is not the same as the factory and the equipment in one place. It's not the same as the ship, which is going off sailing. At the very beginning of capitalism, these were important kinds of enterprises. But capitalism depends on the mobility of capital that you're able to take your money out of that factory and put it into another business. If you think, wait, making carriages to be pulled by horses is a bad business, I should get into automobiles, right? You can take your money out and move it. So modern capitalism has depended on the existence of of portable finance that could be redirected to other investments. It's depended also on the harnessing of free labor. The idea that workers could choose a job someplace, that workers were not serfs um, or tied to the land, that they were in some ways also a portable asset, a different form of capital in a way. Um, And finally, it depends on uh, states uh, taking on certain economic responsibilities like providing monetary systems that make possible some of the rest of this. Now the central thing in that that I would say makes the capitalism, is a productive system. It's gotta be producing something and it's got to be based on the ability to move capital from one business to another as an investment um, so that you can make different things. You can make money in different ways and the key, that's key because that's what drives the tremendous capacity to innovate in capitalism. What distinguishes capitalism most from other economic systems is its dynamism. It's a growth machine. It has various downsides. It increases inequality, it does other things that are problems sometimes, but it's great at producing growth. It's great at dynamism. And it's great at that because it's good at redirecting resources from older and declining industries to newer and advancing industries. From older and declining countries to newer and advancing countries or countries that are newly advancing, I wouldn't actually say China's a new country. The the disability, which is linked to what the economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction. Capitalism is always destroying something. You never get the new without the destruction of the old. That horse and buggy business had to be destroyed when the car business emerged, right? The um, emergence of um, new communications media on the internet has an impact on old print media. right? That, that capitalism always works in that way. It redirects investments from some businesses to others. So it has to be possible to move your money. And it has to be possible to do it without the state completely controlling it. Right? For political reasons. The state can't say, oh no, we won't let you move your money. Because if you take your money um, out of Yunnan um, and put it, in Guangzhou, that will be terrible for Yunnan, and there will be unemployment, and there will be problems for us, right? Capitalism is the detachable quality of the capital, that it can go to other investments, and that's both the strength and one of the vulnerabilities. Yeah, the yellow sweater. Democracy, depending on how it's organized, can be um, extremely effective and perhaps crucial because it not only secures government decision making, albeit with some inefficiencies, it secures um, a legitimacy for the government, potentially. But when that doesn't happen, right, when the democratic institutions don't work well and the legitimacy gets undermined, you get the inefficiencies without the major long-term benefit in terms of, of more widespread popular legitimacy, so to give a short answer, happy more people chance, I don't think that there is any necessary or essential relationship between democracy and capitalism. I think that has been a relationship that has existed much of the time in the last hundred years, but there is no essential relationship. You could have capitalism without democracy. Um, and therefore, I would not say that democracy is essential for long-term economic growth. I think that it is valuable and important for many things, but that is not a crucial, that's not a requirement. Okay. So do you think
2: people find the government mainly
1: in the gains rather than in their own rights? Do I think people evaluate the government just in terms of economic gains rather than in terms of other things like rights and so forth? Sometimes. I think that's dangerous because I think when citizens are led to judging in economic terms entirely. First off, they often misjudge what is in their economic interest. But secondly, they tend to judge very short-term economic gains. um, What will happen in the next six months or one year or what's happening right now? um, What would make me better off at the next election? And I think that that is a tendency um, to that sort of short-term economic evaluation I think it's pushed by recession and crisis. When people are better off, they have more ability to um, focus in other ways, though that doesn't have to happen. And so I think that the um, current situation is one in which there is a very widespread judging of governments by short-term economic indicators as represented in the media. And that this is fairly dangerous. Um, because it it is not conducive to making good long-term economic policy, let alone to the protection of other kinds of citizen rights or um, popular participation in government or other kinds of goods. But I do think that that's happening. I'm speaking primarily about the West when I say that, but in fact, I think this is a bigger issue elsewhere. I think China has also... Um, succumbed to a lot of short term self interested economic thinking on the part of many citizens. I think that's also true in India. I don't think it's unique to the Western situation. Yeah, in the back. Sorry, I, can you speak up just a little bit? So the phone rang right at the time you're talking there. Elder care. Great question. This is a huge issue for China, as for many other countries around the world. Um, and to its credit, the Chinese government is recognizing that this is a big issue and working on it. I don't have a perfect answer for exactly how to get uh, the adoption of better elder care uh, institutions in China. I do think it's crucial. And I would point out that it's connected to lots of other things, it's connected to the position of women and the number of women. Um, in China and the issue of of sex selection at birth and so forth. I still remember in 1984 when I was here there were posters up all around saying girls are wonderful to have, right? (laughs) That girls will take care of you when you get old so you shouldn't always prefer a son but all of the research that's been done suggested these posters were not completely persuasive um, and uh, that there's an issue and it will become an issue. So as people age, as the people who age Um, include participants in the um, changed economy who have more capital, They will. one possibility is a more or less consumer-driven approach to that, which would be more similar to something like the U.S. That is an approach in which people buy elder care for themselves. They buy into elder um, apartment buildings or something like that, senior buildings. So you can think one option is there are enough older people with money that they can buy the care, classic market solution. The other option is some kind of state provision or charitable provision. And remember I said at the beginning that a very interesting question for the future of China is whether China will develop large-scale philanthropy and charitable institutions. Whether wealthy people in China will give some significant part of their wealth to providing for the larger social good or will only use it for themselves. And I think we don't know that yet. So far it doesn't look really good, but there are a few signs of hope. And so there are plenty of signs of billionaires who don't have very much interest in helping other people, but there are charities, there are philanthropies, and there's a growing number and a growing interest. Um, Just today I learned about a a program at Renda um, for uh, the study and uh, training of people for work in philanthropic and charitable centers, and so forth, so I think this is growing. In some parts of the West, um, this is one of the big roles that was played by religion. Um, that religious charities uh, built much of the elder care facility as much the healthcare facility. I'm not predicting that will be the solution in China, but it was through private charity, in that case religious, and, and that's another possibility. The final choice though is straight state provision, and it would require a very large scale of state action, and, um, and it's a real question. There are lots of compromise positions like bonds Um, like an increasing use of bonds, and indeed the uh, PBC could issue bonds as it's beginning to look at environmental solutions. The Chinese state looks at environmental problems in cities, it doesn't just say, we have to go do everything. Increasingly it says, we can help finance a green economy by other kinds of mechanisms. And the same thing could go for elder care. Make it worthwhile, create some guarantees and supports for entrepreneurs to build and run the housing, so all those are possibilities. I think that it's a huge issue. It's you know hanging over China. By the time any of you are old, this had better be solved. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, I find your uh, talk very interesting and inspiring. I have a question about the, the global leadership. So, as you mentioned, uh, the capitalism is a uh, definition or conception that free movement of people, resources, and the capitals. And uh, I'm really uh, uh, caring about what is behind of this kind of this mechanism or system. From my understanding, probably it's uh, justice. Because in our society, we want to uh, live in a good society, a better society, but in which uh, the legal system or justice uh, system is really uh, the final appeal for ordinary people, a final window to the cry uh, for ordinary people. So if we want to have a global leader in the future, if American is not really wants to be uh, the global leader in the next decades, who will be the leader? We don't know. And uh, what's the characteristics or the uh, value for the person or for the country to be the leader? Okay. What's about the justice uh, value uh, behind the core value Okay,
1: Um, great questions. I think partly behind and partly coming out of capitalism. That is, um, in and of itself, capitalism isn't about justice and doesn't produce justice. It produces lots of good things, like economic growth and new technologies, but not justice in particular. And um, so the question is how we combine the benefits of capitalism with justice, or if the only way to get justice is an alternative system. You know, we can quote Chairman Mao at this point. The, um, the, so, And there are questions about definition of justice. Now, even domestically, that's an issue. And that's what I refer to as the legitimacy question. I think if there's not enough sense of justice, then discontent in the population becomes a big problem. Um, I don't know how to measure exactly what is enough. It's not perfect. You know, things don't have to be perfect. People will tolerate a lot of injustice if they think they're basically getting ahead. But if they don't think they're basically getting half, if they don't think their children will have a better life than they have, then they become much less tolerant of the injustices around them. Now that's inside. On a global scale, for what's worth, I think America will continue to be a strong global leader, but it won't be by itself the dominant leader. But we've had the situation since the end of the Cold War, since 89, 92, that period, of one superpower in a very central position. Whether you like it or not, even if you say, I'm a great fan, I love Americanization of everything, it's not a sustainable model. For one country to be playing that role, it's too expensive, among other things. And um, if you don't like it, and you think it's unjust and America dominating, then it's even worse. right? And my view is that it's necessary that there be leadership in the system, which is the heart of your question. It's not necessary that there be a leader. So for most of the history of modern capitalism, there has been either a dominant leader or two major rivals as Britain and Germany became rivals leading to um, the World War II and crises and things like that and then America rising out of that. I don't think it has to be a single country. It's in a way easier to organize if there's one dominant power, but what it has to be is a leadership structure. And I would hope that it's possible for several powerful countries to cooperate. I think it remains to be seen, because by and large, countries have not been good at this. And there are different theories of why not. Is it because their politicians, the people who are running those countries, don't value this, don't do a good job, are too eager to try to benefit at each other's expense? Is it because the countries always put their own interests first to too much of an extent and they don't look for the justice of the larger system? Um, perhaps. Right. So I think there, there are a range of questions. But I think a lot hinges. If there has to be just one leader, I don't think we're going to get just one leader. It's not like we're going to go from it being US to being China in some nice peaceful transition. If it really had to be just one leader, I think we're looking at a period of chaos as US power declines and no other power is strong enough to be the dominant power. My hope is that that's not the situation because it's possible for multiple countries to be partners, perhaps US and China, perhaps Europe's a part of that, perhaps not, but that some partnership among multiple countries is the main way to avoid the chaos of there not being any global leader, um, which is a real threat, in which case you could get wars and you could get other kinds of, of problems. Um, but this is placing a high demand on the quality of leadership from multiple countries. And I want to make clear that, well, this is what I hope for. I am not saying that I've seen very much empirical evidence that we can count on all of the world leaders to deliver this. Yeah, in the back. Uh, thank you,
2: sir. Uh, when well, you talk about the, you know, the new financial influences in the emerging markets, so I immediately think of uh, the you know the Chinese uh, state owned companies and its enterprises. I think it's quite interesting, yet a little bit worrisome to see that you know such drastic um you know aggregation of financial and political power in such a short time as many co- uh, companies are stretching their uh, you know legs to yeah. other continents.
1: Yeah, Huawei or, or something they, like yeah. this.
2: Yeah. Of course. So I, I want to know how do you assess this? Maybe in another perspective, how is it much stronger or um, more in vulnerable of such a you know, financial system that, uh, in terms of you know, facing the potential uh, financial crisis in the future?
1: So I think that the basic phenomenon you point to of Chinese businesses on a large scale becoming more and more important global players, and some of them being in varying degree state-owned is going to continue probably. And it's going to be very important. And it's one of the reasons I say, I said earlier that the question of are we talking about capitalism or socialism is an interesting discussion, but there's no answer. It's not one or the other. But I think there are going to be mixtures. So is a firm that is controlled um, largely, but not entirely, by the Chinese state, that doesn't operate as a ministry, but operates as a business, but where the major investment comes from the state socialist, capitalist, what? It's a kind of capitalism, but the question is, will it be run with state investments primarily on economic principles, or will it be to basically do its work as a capitalist um, in the markets, or will it be run directly for political power? And you've seen both kinds. You've seen both kinds in China. You've seen both kinds with the PLA. The PLA owns a lot of businesses, and it has behaved at different points in each way. It has used the businesses to advance power essentially and it's used the businesses simply to make money as investments and run them the same way that any other investors might have wanted them to make the maximum amount of profit. And so I don't know the answer and I don't think anyone really knows the answer of how autonomous state-owned companies can become if they operate more or less as capitalist businesses on this larger global scale. What I would say is that state connected businesses certainly do. And I, what I tried to point to very briefly in talking is that there's an illusion about the West, which was that there was a complete division between politics and markets. And that all of the Western companies were just pure market independent of government. So well, you know, the uh, East India Company, hard to see it as perfectly independent of the British government absolutely a pioneering firm, was the government in much of India at one time, um, you know, complicated. And there are other examples of this in the West. Lots of the early international firms in the West had significant state links and sometimes were um, partially state-owned um, or largely state-owned. So that it's, the West doesn't tell us that there was a model in, before in which this never happened. Now, it's probably happening more in China than it ever did in the West, and so it could change things. It could create a different kind of capitalism on a global scale, which is which state capitalism is much more central. State capitalism was important to the Soviet Union in many ways, and some of the East European socialist countries. That is, they states owned businesses that they ran as capitalist businesses to a fairly large extent. Um, the economies didn't do terribly well, but, um, but there were models of this. So I think that it's entirely possible. It's probably, it was actually also important to the Third Reich, to Germany, um, uh, going into World War II, that there were lots of businesses that were closely interwoven with the state, some of them more successful than the socialist examples. So it can happen. I think it probably is part of the future mix. So my best guess would be will come. And my best guess is that most of the people internationally those businesses are dealing with, say in Africa, um, aren't very worried about it. Um, th- that's not a big liability for those businesses as international players. And of course, it's an advantage in some ways. Yeah? Yes. Um, I'm actually
2: uh, uh, um, a owner. I work at the PhD of, of the uh, SCU. And I got the information that there are only 59 for scholarships for all the PhD, PhD can, candidates this year, and uh, only a small portion can get them. So, my question is Is it possible for the LSE to increase the funding of for students? Yes, <laughs> and the best
1: the way to do that yeah. is by philanthropy. <laughs> 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 so, no accident, I talked about, but seriously, scholarship funds. Um, for the, from the LSE come from really two sources, right? The money paid by other students
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: or gifts from private donors. These are the only two places the scholarship funds come from. Now, the, sometimes private donors are foundations or something like this, or, and sometimes um, government sponsor people, but that's not a scholarship from the LSE, that's the government sponsoring people here, as, as for example, there are people now sponsored by organizations. But, as far as scholarships are concerned uh, the uh, the there are slightly more for PRC than for India. I can tell you we just more can increase this but the um, the issue is an important one i'm worried if the LSE students are not the best and the brightest but the best and the brightest with rich parents. I think that the, the LSE deserves having the students be um, those who are the most talented, the most motivated, who will take the most advantage of an LSE education and put that knowledge to good work. That's how we should choose students, and we do. But then the question um, of how many of them um, can have scholarships depends on how well we do motivating some people who have some wealth (laughs) to support the availability of scholarships for others That may include people who benefited a lot in their careers from their LSE education and would like to make an opportunity for somebody else. And this is why it matters to the LSE in old England what sorts of traditions develop in China as a newly emerging country of wealth. Because whether there are institutions, LSE is not the only one that would benefit. It will matter for elder care. It will matter for other things. But it will really matter whether there are philanthropic traditions. Yeah. Please, go ahead.
2: Oh, okay, sorry about that. Uh, I think this is also a question related to, uh, to the last one. Um, uh, I'm interested to know your, uh, your, your opinion on the future of the undergraduate education of LSE and uh, whether you know, as a, a professor that in the U.S. Uh, would bring some merits of the U.S. education system to LSE and how much resources would you actually allocate to, to you know, undergraduates in LSE. I'm asking this because um, I'm, I'm a, a class of 2008 undergraduate myself. And went on to um, Yale University in the U.S. to obtain master. Uh, Comparing my experiences at both schools, uh, you know, at least personally, I think there's a lot more to do, you know, for the Alice side to catch up with uh, its U.S. rivals.
1: I think that um, there's lots to this. So, uh, the first thing is that. The LSE has had debates about how committed it was to undergraduate education sometimes. Says, oh, should we be all postgraduate? Should that be our overwhelming emphasis? What should we do? My view is that we need to have undergraduate education, that that should be half of what we do and um, and should be important. And in fact, we're slightly increasing the number of undergraduates um, this year. Um, just on a, a, We're planning to increase just uh, by um, one to three hundred each year for the next three years uh, or four years. Read that takes resources and the resources have to come from somewhere. So the same thing goes on. Do they come from students paying fees? Do they come from the government? Do they come from private donors? Or do they come from some kinds of business contracts or other sorts of things? There are not only so many places resources come from. The LSE doesn't have resources of its own. It gets them from these different sources. And um, so what we can do to improve the undergraduate teaching, the undergraduate opportunities outside of class, Um, is dependent on that. My goal would be to do that. That has partly about resources and it's partly about the way we work. My own view is on average actually um, the elite British undergraduate schools like the LSE do a better job of teaching in the core disciplines. Um, The very best Americans, Yale for example, the very best of the institutions um, have a huge amount of resources that they put into um, some other approaches. The American system is much better on flexibility. The British system is much better on in-depth instruction in one field. The American system is better on, if you will, sort of professionalization. The British system is better on uh, a kind of intellectuality of the conversation that goes on. Um, So they each have advantages. My hope would be at the LSE that we will be able to take some advantage of each system. That We will create some flexible degree options and some that are concentrated. So right now, for example, an economics degree at the LSE, you learn much more economics in three years than you would in an American, even a really good one like Yale, in four years. The reason is that at the American system, it's your major, right? It's one third of your classes. Now, what you get is a lot more breadth You get much broader education from the American system. You don't get as much in-depth. It makes it more important to go on and do a master's or something else. The one reason you don't see very many English students in the LSE master's programs is that the English undergraduate degrees are very concentrated and you get a lot in your specific subject. So there are trade-offs. I want to offer a choice. My view is what we should do is have different options and give people more choice. So you can see how I stand on, on markets or something. The, um, and that, that's the way to go. But my view equally is we need resources. Um, that we need to provide more personal attention. Um, that means hiring faculty. That means having smaller class sizes. That means not relying on really big lectures all the time. Um, having more seminars, right? I think that there are a lot of ways we know how to do, and never mind how we use internet technology or some all these other new questions. We can improve, but we can only improve with resources and so we are working to try to deploy it. In terms of resource allocation, improving teaching in both undergraduate and master's degrees is a top priority of mine. Um, I think that the LSE is justifiably world famous for its research but we cannot live only by research. We are a teaching institution and teaching needs to be at the center of what we do. Um, it's interesting to use the Yale example in the American case because you wouldn't say the same of Harvard that you would say of Yale in terms of the extent to which the elite faculty were paying personal attention to the undergraduates. Yale and Princeton, Brown, are much better at this than Harvard, for example, um, or Stanford, and which are great universities and have terrific you know, educational systems and so forth, but it's not every American university. And then when you leave the top five or seven and you go down, you get big classes and a relatively impersonal system in the US too. So my goal is very high and honorable in this. I want to allocate a lot of resources to it. My problem is I don't have a lot of resources. <laughs> <laughs> and so the solution is not only good intentions, but a serious effort to try to increase the resources that come to the LSE in each of the different ways possible. So, yeah, in the back. Good, then you can solve this problem. It's a big question, and I won't answer it. <laughs> um, I will say a couple of things, but it's too big to answer. So how do we balance the role of uh, politics in the market, of state and markets in the economy? Um, and there are a lot of dimensions to it. So uh, the relevant kinds of public management and state provision range from regulatory systems and the creation of adequate, but also flexible and efficient regulatory systems for economic activity, through to what amounts to basically treasury and bank policy, um, making sure that the monetary system is sound. And there are big questions. For example, the Bank of England for the last several years has been managed with a primary goal being inflation targeting. right? Keep inflation low. Um, One of the impacts of that is to make the bank's policy um, appear to be um, not so conducive to growth um, as it might be. The new governor of the Bank of of England, coming from Canada, says he's more interested in growth, and we'll do that. So this is simply to illustrate that there are choices. Um, That it's not just a question of, is the state there or not? Nobody's saying to do away with the Bank of England. The question is, what's the right policy to be pursued? Very much like in a private business. Um, private businesses just don't go around being private, they make decisions. And what it means to be private is that there are not the same constraints on the decisions that there are for public policymakers, um, but they still are choices, and they can make the wrong choice. You know, they can say, as IBM said, I remember before, IBM said, I had actually, I literally say, they said it to me. I was at a, a conference, I said it to a lot of people um, that, you know, these personal computers are not really going to catch on right and they delayed starting a personal computer division one reason IBM ended up in the situation of selling out to Lenovo late was that it never gained the market share because it delayed moving into this because it was comfortable with its old business in big mainframe computers so private businesses can make wrong decisions just as governments can but they're punished for those wrong decisions in different ways by market mechanisms so I think that, that that's the kind of thing I have in mind. But we could go on to other things. Investing in infrastructure. Some of the most important ways in which the Chinese state is involved in economic advancement of China is infrastructure, right? transportation infrastructure, um, the water resources, waste management for cities, um, a whole series of infrastructural investments, right? which are either direct government investments or are government contracts to private investors with varying degrees of government financing, and so forth. So that kind of thing makes a difference. And in Britain too, there are questions. There are major public investments um, at different time. And the nature of those public investments is not just countercyclical. it's not just a Keynesian question, oh, do you come in when the economy's bad and try to boost it? They actually are productive investments. I, I wrote a paper, this is a self-indulgent digression, but I'll take one moment. I wrote a paper, it was published in 1980-something, I've forgotten, um, comparing China and Egypt um, and saying why China's growth would be much more substantial in Egypt. Now, this was published um, and, and written. Uh, it was actually written before the death of Chairman I think. Uh, but in any case, it was um, a paper that was not about the new transformation of China. It was looking at infrastructure. as us point out, at that time, China and Egypt had essentially the same gross national product um, per capita. Um, They were at the same place in the World Bank's tables of countries, high and low, right? Um, But China had a fantastically better infrastructure, a sort of inheritance, road systems and things like that, and it had human capital of a different kind, different education ratio in the population and so forth. So the immediate surface description gross national product was misleading. Now governments act often to create those sorts of conditions like roads, just if you thought of roads as a basic condition of trade it's really hard to trade without roads or railroads or airplanes and airports or shipping conditions Um, and those sorts of investments as public sector investments hugely benefit private markets and they shape private markets and they shape where trade will take place. Where in China the government has invested in rebuilding the airports, right, Has an impact on trade and investment in those cities. So that sort of thing I have in mind, too. Sort of thing we might add, my predecessor, Howard Davies, whom some of you will have known, um, is working on, as he chairs, a royal commission to look at the um, potential for expanding airport service in London. A major liability for London as one of the centers of global finance and a number of other kinds of global trade is inadequate infrastructure for airports. Um, I think that's mostly right. The, I don't actually think the crisis is going to just finish and return to normal. The world's going to be different after it. But basically, I think you're right that um, we, people thought the crisis was going to bring major new international cooperation and regulatory things. Gordon Brown, who was Prime Minister at the time of the Center of the Financial Crisis, um, had his, his greatest achievement getting the G20. Um, countries to cooperate, getting all of these countries to chip into global funds and to work and effectively on a global regime to stop the meltdown early in the financial crisis. Um, that um, was successful and it lasted about six weeks and there has not been any major cooperation among the G20 countries since. So the, I think your basic point is reinforced by that that we have not produced a new cooperative regime. In that emergency, temporarily, we managed just, right? And there are a variety of academic and popular books, both written about how good it would be if we cooperated. None of them have actually found the political will. And the political will is not going to come from a book, right? It's gonna come from people working on this, people like you, others, working in diplomacy, in public management, in the private sector, to try to create this cooperation. Cooperation depends on trust. Um, and it's set back every time we have a major episode that increases distrust between countries. And we have plenty of those. And we have things like the war in Syria, that at one level seem to have nothing to do with this, but they become an occasion for countries either to cooperate or not. And, and so I'm not terribly optimistic. And I think uh, the fact that many people in many countries know that this sort of cooperation is important, doesn't solve the problem, the basic collective action problem about producing the cooperation, and we're not making uh, particularly great progress. The other thing I would note, and then we're sort of running out of time, we should probably close, um, something I haven't mentioned, because I think it's not hugely central, but is interestingly missing, is social movements. There are social movements the world. The World Social Forum from Porto Alegre, and the um, large-scale movements Occupy Wall Street and its Occupy offshoots around Europe. Um, the Arab Spring, the um, attempted launch of social movements in China, um, and some similar sorts. By and large, I think that these reflect unhappiness with conditions, but don't offer solutions. And um, I think that they sometimes offer moral alternatives for what would be a more moral society. But the sense in which they don't offer solutions is the immediate practical politics of generating the cooperation and producing the new solution. So my observation um, as a sociologist and among other things, in addition to being partly an economic historian, Um, my sociological half has been studying social movements and radicalism and the politics of engagement with economic issues. Um, There's been surprisingly little, and it has generated surprisingly little change during this period. For the drama of Occupy Wall Street, the long-term change is small. It may be an inspiration to a future movement, but immediately, as far as I can tell, Wall Street's still ahead. Um, The the, uh, and that's not to belittle the, the activity. On the contrary, it's to say how, you know, even highly publicized activity that involved personal sacrifice for people has a hard time getting a purchase on this, um, that, that there have been protests right, all over, but the ability to successfully transform is small. We have to remember, we have a history of revolutions. Right, the Soviet Revolution, the Chinese, two Chinese revolutions, the range of actions. Sometimes social movements change history. Sometimes it's possible for people to take action from below that overturns and changes things. And that's possible in the future. But at the moment, I don't see it happening on a large scale. And the only area in which I see it happening in a really significant way is not the economy, but the environment where it's not so much finding an alternative way to do things as pushing for change, demanding that governments and businesses become greener. I do see a big connected environmental movement. I do see some effects, but I don't at the moment see an economic movement. But I do see a crowd that has to go home eventually tonight and is thinning <laughs> out, um, and um, people who look tired, although they're being too polite to yawn openly. Um, it's been terrific talking with you all. Thank you for all the good questions. Thank you for being here.